Well, it is a blessing to be here with you guys to begin the new year, 2022. It is a privilege to uh, continue where we left off in our Forerunners of the Faith study. We are now in Lesson 3, which is the first installment in Part 2, the Patristic Period, which is the period of church history spanning from the 2nd to 5th century A.D. You'll notice in your workbook on the Part 2 green page that there is a little footnote there that defines what we mean by the patristic period. It says the term patristic comes from a Latin word meaning father. So the patristic period refers to the era of the early church fathers, that is, early Christian leaders after the time of the apostles. So when you go home today and your parents ask you what you talked about in Sunday school, you can say, I learned about the father period, <laughs> the patristic period. Um, you guys are going to be a tough crowd, I can tell, since nobody really laughed at that joke. There we go, right on cue, right on cue. Well, with that in mind, uh, we're going to go ahead and dive right on into lesson three after I open this up in a word of prayer. And um, before I pray, can I get somebody to read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2? And that is going to be our focal point. It's actually going to be the, uh, oh, thank you, Hannah. Hannah's going to read that. And that, that text is going to be our focal point right at the outset of this lesson. I'm going to have a question for us to consider before we really get into the weeds of this lesson. But just let me pray first uh, to begin our new year together and our study today on a right note. Let's pray. Lord God, it is a joy to be back with these young men and women that you've brought to FBC Edna. Lord, I pray that 2022 will provide these people with a tremendous opportunity to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to, if they don't know him yet, Father, to be saved, to have their eyes open to the reality of your holiness and the the soberness of what it means to be a sinner in light of a holy God and how there is no hope outside of Jesus to be able to know you and to be able to escape your wrath in hell for all of eternity. I pray that those who have not come to that awareness personally would do so in 2022. And for those of us who do know you, Father, for those of us who have come to the awareness that without Christ we are without hope, without Christ we will perish in our sins and be subjected to your outpouring of wrath in hell forever and ever. For those of us who by your grace have had our eyes opened and who have repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus, my prayer is that we would fall even more in love with you this year. Father, that we would become more and more like Jesus Christ in our character and in our actions, that we would point others to him, both in our words and in our lifestyles. And Father, that you would be supremely magnified through us being who you've called us to be in Christ. I pray for your blessings on this year. I pray for your blessings on our time together this morning. May it be a rich time of study and fellowship. I pray you would give these students boldness to ask questions if they need things clarified. Lord, I pray you would give them um, the ability to not only understand the truths we're going to be talking about today, but to also apply those truths to their lives so that they might be shaped and transformed by them. Father, give me wisdom by your Holy Spirit to guide the conversation and to accurately interpret your word and to effectively communicate the truths that we're going to be discussing to these young people so they might um, leave this place with a deeper understanding of what you have for us today. We commit this lesson to you, Father, 
and the rest of our Lord's Day to you in 2022 to you as well, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, 2 Timothy 2.2. Hannah's going to take care of that for us. Very good. So, I have a multi-part question for you guys. In light of that verse we just read, if you don't have a workbook in front of you, which several of you guys don't, uh, go ahead and make sure you have the passages pulled up in front of you via your hard copy of Scripture or your cellular device copy of Scripture, just so you can track with what we're talking about here, because you're going to need it for uh, being able to adequately think through and answer this multi-part question. The question is, though, in light of what Hannah read from 2 Timothy 2.2, the first part of the question is this. As we transition from the apostolic age to the patristic period, so as we transition from our consideration of the first century church during the apostolic age, right, the, the era of the apostles, roughly 30 A.D. to 100 A.D., it's a transition from that to the patristic period, which is roughly 100 A.D. to um, 500 A.D., give or take. What do you think is significant about the teaching of 2 Timothy 2.2? What do you think this verse implies about a transition from the time of the apostles to the patristic era and really every era after. What first off, what is Paul saying in that verse? If you had to sum it up. And then and then Right, so the things so he's saying, Timothy, the things you heard from us, the apostles, you need to take those and you need to Entrust those to others, faithful men particularly, but faithful women as well. We need to trust in the faithful men and women, followers of Christ. And then they need to take what they heard from you and what you heard from us, and you need to take that me- they need to take that message and then they need to pass it down to others as well. So what do you see there? What's happening? It's a progression, right? It's a domino effect. Now what do you think that's what do you think that has to do? with a transition from the apostolic age to the patristic age. What's happening there? Well, yeah, th- things got confused a little bit, we could say, as, as the apostles passed away and as different era of church history passed on um, over the centuries. But really practically, though, as it pertains to this idea of the truth getting passed down from one generation to the next, what do you think... Um, when you think about the transition from the apostolic age to the patristic age. Do you think, let me, let me give you maybe some, some, uh, some hints here. Do you think that that was fulfilled? Do you think it was neglected? I think it was definitely neglected in some areas, but like, ultimately the reason we're here today is because this was fulfilled to some extent. There you go. That, that's kind of what I was going for. I think that, that second part of the question kind of helps you guys out. Do you guys agree, disagree with Hannah on that? I mean, think about it. If, if all the truth was lost, if this passage was ultimately not fulfilled, we wouldn't be here today. There would be no Christianity. And really, practically, guys, think about 
even if you took God out of the equation, you took the providence and the wisdom of God out of the equation, you just look at it from a purely secular, sociological perspective and historical perspective. The fact that Christianity has, is even still here should get our attention. Um, it started in this little obscure part of the world from some no-name carpenter that people told all these tall tales about, right, from the, from the secular outside uh, perspective. This little small group in the Middle East about some obscure um, carpenter that, that, that we have no writings from. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, he, he's the most famous person in the history of the world. There are billions of people who worship him as God, and they all proclaim more or less a similar message that faith in him is the means to have forgiveness of sin and a personal relationship with the creator of all things. I mean, just... From a purely historical, sociological perspective, it is astounding that Christianity still exists today. But we know from a biblical perspective, from a Christian perspective, that's because God, by his grace, raised up men and women who fulfilled this very passage. They took what they learned from the apostles and they went and told others about those truths, and then those people went and told others about those truths, and then those people went and told others about those truths. And before you know it, it's going all throughout the world. And we learned about how that initial spreading took place through the book of Acts, but we've seen it over the past 2,000 years now, literally on a global scale. Hope that gets us started now thinking through uh, this transition that we're going to be studying over the next several weeks in lesson three and following in the patristic age section of Forerunners of the Faith. I want to read to you guys a little introduction paragraph here in my teacher's guide before I get us into another discussion question. Dr. Busnitz notes the following by way of introduction to the patristic era. He says, in contemporary churches, 2 Timothy 2.2, the verse we just read, is often viewed as a model for multi-generational ministry. That is certainly a valid way to think about that verse. But when Paul first wrote about faithful men and others also, he undoubtedly had specific people in mind. When we look back at early church history, we discover the names of some of those faithful men. They were part of the generation of believers who came immediately after the apostles. As previously noted, they did not view themselves as apostles, but rather as pastors and elders who had been entrusted with the truth. Their charge was to guard the treasure they had received and faithfully preserve it for future generations. We refer to these early Christian leaders as the apostolic fathers. The term church fathers should be thought of in the sense of founding fathers. They were the early leaders of the church. In this case, their close connection to the apostles makes them apostolic fathers. Busnitz concludes by saying that the apostolic fathers include the authors of a number of works that have survived to the present. In this section of Forerunners of the Faith, we're going to consider five apostolic fathers. Five apostolic fathers that we're going to be covering. We're going to cover two, Lord willing, during our time together today, and then the remaining three uh, at a future time. So the five that this section of Forerunners of the Faith 
are going to zero in on are Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, the author of the Didache, and the author of the letter to Diognetus. Today we're going to cover Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch. Now, if you have a workbook, we are in Roman numeral 2. You should say Clement of Rome died around, that's what the uh, letter C is referring to, it's died around 100 AD. You'll notice two blanks right there underneath that heading. I want to give you the answers to that. Clement pastored the church in Rome, blank number one. Clement pastored the church in Rome from around 90 to 100 A.D. 90 to 100 A.D. To put that in perspective, he was pastoring the Roman congregation when the Apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, I want to give you guys something that will really blow your mind about this figure. We do have reason to believe. We can't know for absolute certainty, but we do have reason to believe that Clement of Rome is the Clement that was mentioned in Philippians 4.3. Somebody pull up Philippians 4.3 and read that text for us. Who wants to take it? Yeah. Very good. So we have some grounds um, through Clement's writing and through this reference to a Clement in Philippians 4.3. And given the um, time in which he ministered, he would have had close connections to Peter and Paul. Um, we, we, we very well, as we're going to see at least um, in seed form, we're going to look at an excerpt together. And, and see what Clement was teaching, particularly about the gospel. But we're, we're looking at writings, my friends, of somebody who's mentioned in the Bible. He's not an apostle, but he's closely connected to the apostles of Christ. And as we're going to learn here in just a few moments, he was very integral in the preservation of foundational truth in the early church. Significant figure to study as we look at the very earliest portion of the patristic era of church history. Now, in terms of his writing that survived, we have one letter that we can analyze. There's, um, there's two letters that, have, that bear his name that were written at some point in the late part of the first century, early part of the second century. We can't be for sure if he wrote a letter called Second Clement, but we do know he wrote the letter that we know today as First Clement. Busnitz notes that Clement's one letter that has survived that we know for sure that he wrote was written in the mid-90s, addressed to the church in Corinth. And you'll, 
this is going to be very fascinating, I think, for you guys, especially if you heard Brother Robert's sermon this morning. The primary issue that Clement addresses in First Clement, the only surviving letter that we have of his today, he's addressing the subject of division within the Corinthian congregation. Now, why do you think that might be significant for our purposes this morning? What was First Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, written roughly 40 years prior to Clement writing his letter to the Corinthians? What was one of the issues that Paul addresses in the Corinthian congregation? I'll give you a hint. It's right at the beginning of the letter. Right at the beginning of the letter. Divisions in the church. Thank you, Hannah. So, so we've got a guy. Let, let's let's contextualize this. We have a, we have a man here. He's a prominent leader in the early church. He's not an apostle, but he's closely connected to the apostles, namely Peter and Paul. He's mentioned explicitly, possibly in Philippians, and he's alive long enough to where he would have been familiar with what Paul wrote in First and Second Corinthians, and we also know from the testimony of the Corinthian letters from Scripture that Paul wrote at least one additional letter to the Corinthians. This was a really um, dismantled church, to say the least. There's a lot of problems in it, and now here we are you know, 30, 40-ish years later, and Clement's having to write another letter to the Corinthians telling these guys to stop with the division in their midst. What do you guys think are some lessons we can learn about dealing with sin in the local church in light of the fact that Clement is addressing a identical issue with the same congregation that was addressed decades before he himself was trying to address that issue. So if Paul is addressing the issue of division in the middle of the 50s, and Clement's having to still address the issue of division in the same church 40 years later, what are some lessons we can learn about how we should deal with sin in the local church, given that observation from church history? I wrote down three, but I know there's a lot more that we could. Like specific ways to handle it? Yeah, like how, how should we handle it? Um, how should we think about sin issues in the church? Um, any, anything of that nature. Yeah, we should go to our godly leaders, which I think, I think they did with, with Paul addressing it as an apostle and Clement, of course, being a significant leader in the early church as well. He would have had a lot of respect by virtue of being super close to the apostles and in terms of his, his relationship with them and having ministered with them. So I think, yeah, I think we always need to go to our leaders. Go to the Bible. Yeah, go to the Bible, of course. Mikey? Uh, Jesus, is, Jesus, isn't divided, so we shouldn't be. Yeah, Jesus isn't divided, so we shouldn't be. Now, I think all these guys, I mean, at least I would have hoped so. I wasn't alive at this time, I never talked to anybody in Corinth, but I would at least assume that they would all give lip service to what we're saying. Hannah? Like the church 
Yeah. Right. So, so we need to, as a church, we need to take sin seriously. We need to take the purity of the church seriously, whether doctrinally or uh, in terms of how we worship or in terms of how we live. And those are all good observations. Any other thoughts? I have three that I, I wrote here. And, um, you know, I, it, it gave me some encouragement to know that as great of a leader as Paul was, and I'm sure uh, as great of a leader as Clement was, we don't know as much about Clement as we know about Paul, but from what we do know and what we can see in his writings, he was a, a godly man and he was sound in his doctrine. But the division still existed in this church. This church was still plagued with issues for the better part of 40 plus years. And as I came up with these three implications or these three lessons that we can learn from, from this observation from church history, it gave me encouragement because it reminded me that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. God has to be the one to accomplish healing and reconciliation and repentance um, in our own individual lives, right? In our own individual relationships, but also corporately in terms of the body of Christ. You know, I wrote down these three lessons that we can learn in examining the division that still existed in the Corinthian congregation over 40 years after Paul first addressed those issues. Number one, change takes time, and sometimes it takes decades. And I'm not talking about change as in changing the color of the carpet, change in terms of the style of the music, even change in terms of leadership and, and, and things like that. I'm talking about a culture of change. I'm talking about a genuine transformation where when people look at a church on the other side of change taking place, they can barely recognize what it looked like before. That kind of change takes decades. Change in doctrine, change in, in style of preaching, change in terms of how sin is taken seriously, how purity of church worship and lifestyle practices are taken. That takes a long, long time. So it requires patience, and it requires prayer, and it requires great effort from God's people. So number, number one lesson that I take away from it is change takes time. Sometimes it takes decades. Number two, and this is Hannah, um, largely what she was saying, sin will always need to be dealt with in the local church. If left unaddressed, problems will continue to occur. We can't just sweep sin under the rug, even when it's painful to acknowledge it and address it. I mean, guys, some of the hardest things that we're going to have to do as Christians is lovingly and graciously address sin when there's opportunities for us to do so. And my friends... It can be as simple as, let me give you some practical examples of what can happen in the local church. It can be as simple as somebody is not regularly attending church. Hey, brother, sister, I noticed you haven't been coming a lot lately. Is everything okay? You don't have to send them to hell because they've missed a few weeks consecutively or even a few months consecutively. But you need to lovingly come to them and say, you know, I just I haven't seen you around. I want to make sure you're okay. I, 
I, we really would love to have you at church so you're gathering with the brethren on a regular basis and, and, and observing the Lord's Day as we're commanded to do in Scripture. You know, it can be something as small as that, dealing with sin. It can be something as large as a respected member in the church is having an unbiblical divorce or a, um, a prominent leader in the church is in a season of unrepentant sin. And you may have to not only confront them in love at the individual level, but the church needs to come corporately and begin the process of church discipline as exercised in Matthew 18. So even though it's hard, even though it's painful, even though it breaks our heart to do these things, sometimes we've got to address sin. We can't sweep it under the rug and hope that it'll just go away on its own. This lesson from church history is proof positive that even in addressing sin, Paul addressed sin in in Corinth. Clement is addressing sin. The sin was still festering. There were still problems. And these guys were taking a biblical approach to address it. How much more so does that mean we need to do the same and not just sit back and let it continue to fester and spread like gangrene? If we do that, things will never get better. It'll damage our church in terms of our unity. It'll damage our witness before a watching community and world at large. It'll harm our missions endeavors. It'll harm our joy and worship. There are so many negative implications that stem from not addressing sin in a biblical fashion in love in the local church. And third lesson that I noted here, um, and this, I, I, I hinted at it, just moments ago, but number three, only God can heal division in the local church. If Paul and Clement were unable to fix the Corinthian church in and of themselves, what makes us think that we can? We must trust God to heal and we must trust God to restore the local church when sin is running amok, especially when division is running amok. That's why, my friends, we're not having Wednesday night um, worship in youth. That's why we're going to prayer meetings instead. Because in terms of our church, not to get into too many details while we're on the air, but in terms of what's going on in our church, we're in a situation where only God can heal our congregation. And we All we can do, my friends, is pray, trust the Lord, and remind ourselves that by coming together as a congregation to pray and to acknowledge our utter dependency upon God, we are reminding ourselves, hey, we are united in our need and in our trust in God. We have a need for God. We have a trust in God. We recognize that. We're going to come together. We're going to pray together, and we're going to watch God do a mighty work in his timing. I hope those were some thought-provoking observations for us to, to take note of from Clement. Now, I want to look at Clement's doctrine. We looked at a pastoral and practically relevant issue. But let's look at his doctrine, and this should be in your workbook as well. Does everybody have that paragraph where it says Clement of Rome and there's a, um, there's a quote next to it? All right. So um, this, this quote 
is very important for seeing, again, that 2 Timothy 2.2 principle, that continuity or that progression of truth being passed down from the apostles to subsequent generations. Would somebody be willing to read that quote from Clement? Good snapshot of his doctrine. Somebody who has a workbook. Thank you. You can read that for us. Very good. Now, my question for group discussion on the basis of that quote, and we can take it apart if we need to further, but um, it's important to note that, at least for our purposes this morning, a very important distinctive of Clement's theology as a whole is his understanding of the gospel, namely his understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. By way of review this morning, I just want somebody or us as a group, if we need to, to briefly define the doctrine of justification by faith alone. What do we mean when we say that sinners are justified by faith alone? And why is it important to protect this doctrine at all costs? Um, It's that you are only saved by faith and not by works, but works is a result of your faith, though. Or works, yeah, works is a result of your faith. Yeah, works are a result of your faith, which flows from justification. Now, what what does the word justified mean? That was perfect. You you, you perfectly articulated the, the gospel. You said that sinners are justified by faith alone. That faith in Jesus Christ is the only way for a sinner to be saved, and that works flow from that justification. Um, works are the fruit or the evidence of saving faith. But I, I want us to zero in just, just on that word justified, just because it's a biblical term, and um, it, it's really a word picture that I think will really illustrate what happens when somebody believes the gospel. Does, it, does anybody remember what it means to be justified? Okay, so yeah, we're not held to any of our sins Right. So what is so what is that? So what does that mean? Okay, I'm, I'm I'm trying to I'm looking for a specific phrase. It's okay. So I'll I'll break it down for you guys. No worries. So justified. Okay, it means a declaration of righteous. It's a legal declaration. From God, that a sinner is righteous. That is justification. Just as if I never sinned. What's that? Yeah, no. So born, so born again is the is the phrase that describes God changing your heart. So that that is it's closely connected, Cody. Absolutely. Um, so I'll I'll put it together though because I want to I want to put some some clarity around what Cody said because very closely related. So born again or being regenerated, same concept. Um, that is what takes place to enable a sinner to believe the gospel. So 
You and I, as we know from Ephesians 2, Romans 3, and other places, were born into this world spiritually dead. God, by his spirit, he brings us from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. That's, the, that's that idea of being born again. That's the idea of regeneration. And as a result of being born again, as a result of God regenerating us, we respond to the gospel in faith. Now, it's at the moment we respond in faith. No moment sooner, no moment later. The moment a sinner responds to the gospel as a result of being born again, God declares that sinner as justified, as legally righteous. Now, how is that possible? How can a holy God say that a sinner is legally righteous? Because, my friends, we're not. We have no righteousness. When you believe, you don't become righteous. You're still just as sinful as you were before you believed. So how does God, how can God declare righteous, legally righteous and remain just? Hannah, what do you think? Double imputation. That's right, Hannah. Let me break that down for you guys. Here's how God does it, my friends. It's the, it's the, it's the Reformation axiom. I'm going to use Latin. Simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously sinful yet righteous. Simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously, you can either say simultaneously sinful yet righteous, or you can say uh, or justified rather, or you can say simultaneously justified yet sinful. Um, either way works. I like it. I like saying simultaneously justified yet sinful. And here's how that happens. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk y'all through again. Cody used the term born again. It's important in all of this. We're spiritually dead by nature. In accordance with God's purposes and His timing, He transforms a sinner from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive through the new birth, and the response to that action of God is that the sinner, when they hear the gospel, they believe, they respond in saving faith. And it's it's at that moment through faith, okay? My sin goes to Christ, and at the cross, Christ bore God's wrath in my place, And God's justice for my sin is satisfied for all eternity. And through faith, again, faith is the channel or the means or the tool, however you want to illustrate it in your mind, whatever word works better. Just as my sin goes to Christ through faith, Christ's righteousness comes to me through faith. And when God looks at me, It's as if I had lived the perfect life of Jesus Christ and it's on the basis of Christ's perfect life, His perfect righteousness given to me as a gift through faith that God can say legally righteous. Where our justification is not based on our own righteousness. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. Double imputation. My sin imputed to Christ at the cross, his righteousness imputed to me, or credited or given or transferred, whatever term works best for you to remember it. But that is how God can declare a sinner legally righteous. Double imputation. As the old hymn goes, 
His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. My robes of sin to Christ at the cross, his robes of righteousness to me. And God's justice is satisfied in in punishing my sin at the cross in Christ. And yet he's merciful and gracious in giving me as a free gift, Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness through faith. Good little review. Never get tired of proclaiming the beauty of justification by faith alone. Now, why do you think it's significant that Clement espouses the doctrine of justification by faith alone? Why do you think that's so important? What does it indicate in terms, again, that, think again, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, that was our focal point for today. Right, that, that progression or that transition from the apostles to their followers to their followers to their followers, right? So if Clement is affirming the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and Paul affirmed the doctrine of justification by faith alone, why do you think that is important to see them both agreeing on what the Bible teaches about salvation? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the let me just give you guys some 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 context that our our Roman Catholic friends tend to uh, overlook. And the, and the beauty of this, guys, is this this is historically uh, verifiable. Most cults uh, don't like going to um, dates or sources outside of their own little hub because it contradicts what they. Uh, what they tend to teach, but the title of Pope or universal Bishop, that's what the word Pope means. It didn't even become a concept in the mind of the church until 607. When Boniface the third was regarded as the universal Bishop. And even by then all the stuff that has come into play since then, in terms of how the Pope is, is worshiped and celebrated and all of those things wasn't even attributable at that point in history, but even so, to Witt's point, for those who claim that Peter was the first pope and that Clement was part of that, that, that lineage of popes from Peter on to today, you just can't substantiate it from the testimony of history because the concept wasn't even present until the 7th century. This is the end of the 1st century, beginning of the 2nd century here. It's a term that we call anachronism. It is reading into the past ideas and truths that we claim to make in our present era. Anytime somebody reads things into the past that just weren't there, that is what we call anachronistic or anachronism. Nice word you guys can use um, to talk about these truths with your Roman Catholic friends. And I remember I gave you guys this, this list of 45 Roman Catholic heresies and inventions that took place throughout history. Again, this is all historically verifiable. Um, A lot of Roman Catholics don't even know about these realities because they're just not taught these realities in their church. 
And for those who are taught these realities in their church at a, at a in-depth level, um, they're typically done from a, a very biased slant and, and not from the objective lens of, of a secular um, or even a, a broadly Protestant understanding of history. Um, and again, like I said, if you're, if you're part of a cult, leaders of a cult don't like their members going out and doing their own homework. They like their members to just believe whatever they're told from their leaders. And tragically, that tends to be a, um, a reality that takes place in the Roman Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, Jehovah's Witness, um, and so on. So very good wit for that observation. Does anybody have any more thoughts or questions about Clement before we take a look here at Ignatius of Antioch? Very good. Well, Ignatius of Antioch, Roman numeral three, he died around 117. We don't know when Ignatius was born. We know Clement was born around 30. He died around 100. Ignatius, we don't have his approximate birthday. We do have his approximate death year. But as Busnitz notes, uh, just by way of introduction to Ignatius, he says the Church of Antioch was established in the 40s under the pastoral leadership of Barnabas and Paul, as we find in Acts 11. We learned about that several weeks ago in our previous section of Forerunners of the Faith. But Busnitz continues, he says, Though not mentioned in the book of Acts, Ignatius became the pastor there sometime in the late 1st century. A 5th century tradition suggests that Peter gave instructions for Ignatius to be appointed the pastor of the Antioch church. Tradition also indicates that Ignatius, along with Polycarp, was a disciple of the Apostle John. We have seven of Ignatius' letters to this day. Um, Those letters were each addressed to churches. And one theme that Ignatius routinely addresses in his letters, as we can see in the letters that have survived, is that Christians should gather for worship on Sunday, which is the Lord's Day. We find an example of this in his epistle to the Magnesians. Somebody uh, should be able to read that Little, I mean, it's literally two lines. I think it's just one sentence, but who would be willing to read that in your book? Michael, read that quote from Ignatius there. We are no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, on which, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and his death. Very good. And just clarification on what Ignatius means by the <laughs> word Sabbath. Uh, he, he's meaning the old covenant Israel distinct expression of, of, of Sabbatarian laws on Saturday. Remember, in Old Covenant Israel, um, the Sabbath was the sign of the Old Covenant. Um, the Sabbath pattern or the Sabbath principle was rooted in creation, right? God created in six days. He rested the seventh day as a model for which humanity is to follow six days of work, one day of rest and worship. Um, so when, when Ignatius is referring to the Sabbath in his quote, he's not saying that the six-in-one pattern that's rooted in creation is just cast aside and we don't recognize that. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite. He's saying we need to observe the Lord's Day, which New Covenant theologians recognize as the Christian Sabbath. What Ignatius is saying here is that the laws that were attached to the Old Covenant Sabbath 
are no longer to be kept by Christians in the New Covenant. And the day in which the Sabbath is to be um, observed, or the Lord's Day, the New Covenant Sabbath, the day in which the Lord's Day is to be observed is not Saturday, it's Sunday. And Buznitz puts further clarification on this by noting the following. He says, The church's practice of meeting on Sunday and not Saturday was already established in the New Testament. We see this testified to in Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 2. And he says, It's interesting to see it reiterated by an early Christian leader like Ignatius. Now, as it, it pertains to what we're going to be discussing here as a group, Busnitz notes that in his writings, Ignatius indicates his belief that each local congregation should have only one bishop or lead senior pastor, even though a church might also have multiple elders and deacons. Ignatius seems to stress this point out of a concern that multiple bishops could lead to potential division and disunity within churches. In the New Testament, the roles of bishop and elder are synonymous. Starting with Ignatius, these roles became distinct in church history, with the role of bishop being elevated above the role of elder in terms of authority in the church. So we see elder and bishop as synonymous terms being utilized in places like Acts 20, verses 17 and 28, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. Let's read those scriptures together just so we can give attention to them. Uh, who would like to read the uh, Titus 1, 5 through 7 passage? I'll take the Acts verses. So Titus 1, 5 through 7. Who wants to take that one? Hannah, okay. And who would like to take 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5? Oh, Jacob, take that one, buddy. I'll take the Acts passage first. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent, or excuse me, um, from Miletus, Paul was sent to Ephesus and was called to the elders of the churches. And in verse 28, we find this in the midst of a discussion here. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So elder, bishop, same title, being referred to as the same reality within the same context of Acts 20. Uh, Titus 1, 5 through 7. Very good. Oh, yeah. Although verse nine is important. Just read verse nine. I appreciate you reading the whole thing.
Very good. So we've, we've gone over this passage several times in the past. These are qualifications of pastor, elder, bishop, all the same uh, office in the church. Notice verse 5, uh, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Verse 7, for the overseer, it might say that in your translation, but the literal Greek word is bishop. So elder, bishop, same office, same qualifications, just different words that are used to describe the same concept. First Peter 5, Jacob, whenever you're ready. Very good. All right, guys. So um, as I noted before from Booznitz, the roles of bishop and elder are synonymous. But once we get to Ignatius, and again, now we're, we're probably uh, really getting into the, the first or second decade of the second century. It's been a while since Paul and Peter died. John, depending on when you, when you uh, think that he died, it's probably been 20 or 30 years, depending on uh, if you take a late 80s or 90s view of his death. But nevertheless, 20, 30 years later, uh, from the latest apostle dying, we find a new development in the history of the church, which we know to this day has been um, very, it's been very much misconstrued in a group like Roman Catholicism and in a group like, um, I, I, I could say the, the, the Episcopal Church and uh, Anglican Church and other um, denominations that place this, this elevation on the office of bishop. And really in Baptist churches sometimes, though we don't use the term bishop, we do use the term senior pastor, and sometimes the senior pastor in a Baptist church um, or, or in a non-denominational church that's biblically grounded, sometimes even in churches like that, the senior pastor can get unhealthily elevated or even unbiblically elevated uh, above the other elders that God has ordained and placed in that particular congregation. So my question for us to consider here is to what extent do you agree or disagree with what Ignatius was trying to accomplish? Ignatius, remember, he wanted there to be one elevated bishop, one senior guy, one senior pastor, so that there wouldn't be division among co-equals. Do you agree with, with Ignatius using bishop as hey, this is the head honcho, and then these other guys, although y'all are all elders, these other guys are your subordinates? Or do you agree more with the idea that all the elders are equally ordained by God for the position of spiritual leadership that they're in? They're equally biblically qualified, and therefore they need to serve together as co-equals. And if there is problems, they need to work through those problems biblically. 
What do you guys think about this interesting development that we see in the early part of the second century of church history? That's very good, guys. I, I, I completely agree with you guys uh, for two reasons. Number one, biblically, just flat out biblically, there is no such thing as a senior pastor or a youth pastor or an associate pastor or an executive pastor. I believe every pastor, bishop, elder, whatever term you want to use, it should just be, to keep it simple, either pastor or elder. We don't really use bishop. I mean, it's unfortunate we can't use a biblical term because of all the baggage that it's gained throughout church history. But I think as in like a Baptist church, ABC Baptist church, Pastor Robert, Pastor Dewey, Pastor Alec, you know, keep it. Hey, we are co-equally called by God, co-equally qualified by God. We work together as one team, one unit. This is who we are. Um, I think that's important to recognize. Number two, very practically, I'll tell you a story. I won't tell you who did this, but I had a meeting one time with an elderly member of our church and this sweet lady corrected me and reminded me that I'm really not a pastor. Um, our, our, the senior pastor is the pastor of the church. You're not a pastor. And I had to explain to this sweet woman, um, and I know she was well-meaning, but I, try, I had to explain to her biblically um, I am just as much a pastor as Brother Robert, and um, a youth pastor in our day is just as much qualified for the pastorate as a senior pastor, as a uh, executive pastor, as a music leader, whatever the case may be. If we don't meet the biblical qualifications to be in the office or role of pastor, we don't have any business being in our role. So there, there is no biblical hierarchy of leadership. It, we, there is an even level of spiritual leadership in terms of spiritual competency and calling by God. Now, we do know, of course, it's a little bit different now than it was in the first century, right? God appointed the apostles as the head or the foundation of the first century church, right? Christ appointed them, and they were the, they were the ultimate authority for the first century. We know the apostles... Right, Their office, their function, when they passed away, that ceased to exist. It fulfilled its God-ordained purpose. And from the second century onward, which brings us to where we are today in 2022, um, when God calls men to be in spiritual leadership roles in a local church, they are on a level, equal playing field, equal in authority, equal in spiritual qualifications, and, um, and should be regarded as equals in the side of the local church they're serving in. It's very important for us to recognize that, I think, in our day. Well, the last blank here, um, just for you guys who are taking notes, uh, Ignatius was martyred in Rome around the year 117. According to tradition, he was fed to wild beasts, possibly in the Circus Maximus, an arena similar to the Roman Colosseum. So, um, Ignatius died a martyr's death, and 
Many of the men we're going to continue to study, both in this section of Forerunners of the Faith as well as in future sections, are going to follow suit. They're going to be killed. They're going to be martyred for their commitment to Jesus Christ. And you and I may face a similar death um, in our future. You never know what God might call us to do, but, um, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain, regardless of of uh, how we leave this world and enter into heaven. God is sovereign over all of those details, and he will hold us fast in our faith to the very end. Well, with that, we are going to conclude this lesson with a time of prayer. I hope you guys were encouraged by our lesson. Hope that the conversations that we had and the topics we considered, both from scripture and from church history, were um, intriguing and thought-provoking and Uh, Lord willing, we'll pick up where we left off um, once I return from Kentucky in a few weeks. But let's pray, and we will be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people throughout every generation of church history. We thank you for your faithfulness in preserving and safeguarding the truth of your word. From generation to generation, as we reflected on 2 Timothy 2.2, Lord, we were greatly encouraged by the reality that from Paul to Timothy to Clement and to Ignatius and to those who would even come after them to get us to where we are today in 2022, you have been faithful to safeguard your truth and to allow it to spread throughout every corner of the world, to continue to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation by your son, for your son, and for his supreme glory and for our eternal good and joy in him. Father, we pray that we would be all the more excited and eager to live for you wherever you may call us to be in this life. And Father, until our earthly death or until Jesus Christ returns, Father, may we continue to study your word, to draw near to you in prayer, to point other people to you through our lifestyles and through our words and our conduct. And God, may First Baptist Church of Edna be a place in which you and your word reign supreme, that we would be marked differently from the world and even from all the churches in our community. Help us, God, to be a light in a dark world, a city on a hill for your own renown as we follow suit in the saints who've gone before us. We love you, God, and we give you thanks for this Lord's Day. Pray you would bless the rest of it. Keep us safe as we leave this place. Um, And and in my absence from from, uh, Edna over the next few weeks, I pray you would be with these young men and women, help them to come uh, to church and to worship you and to learn about you and to be, um, Father, just to be thankful for all that you've given to them and all that you've given to this church. We love you, God, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.